This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. Now, LifeAid has several products, one of which I want to highlight because it's so pertinent to you, the sleep-deprived audience. Their product, FocusAid, is a healthy alternative to the energy drinks that I see so many of us relying on because we are exhausted. There's no other way of putting it. These energy drinks that I've seen are putting our men and women into hospitals with arrhythmias, GI distress, adding to anxiety, certainly affecting mental health. So what FocusAid has done is they've removed all the terrible ingredients and used natural, healthy ingredients, natural sweeteners, and replaced the high levels of caffeine with a nootropic. And what a nootropic is, is a supplement for your brain. As a first responder, I can attest that this then allows you to be alert on a call, but when it is time to rest, to go to bed, whether it's the end of the shift, whether it's after a call, you're actually able to not only sleep, but get a better quality of sleep as well. So an incredible product I urge you guys to try, and LifeAid has reached out to you, the audience, to offer you a discount of 15% if you use the discount code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. So that's L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. Use the code SHIELD, which is S-H-I-E-L-D, and please try this. It's going to end up being less expensive than the drinks that you're using And I'm telling you right now, it's an incredible product. And please reach out and let me know what you think. This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato. Um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort, as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 511 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome, guys, to episode 270 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm so excited to bring to you elite gymnast and co-founder of Power Monkey Fitness, Dave Durante. 
Now, Dave is also the third member behind Capacity Wad, along with Chad Vaughan and Chris Hinshaw that we had. We had the Olympic lifting perspective, the endurance perspective, and now we have the gymnastic perspective of overall wellness and health. Um, so a great conversation. We also discuss coaching children and how to set your kids up for success as far as athletics and overall health as well. And then on the other side of the scale, we talk about most of us, people that have maybe got into exercise a little bit later, especially the gymnastic side and how we can set ourselves up for success as well. So great conversation. Before we get to that, as I always say, and you guys have been doing a great job of this, take a moment and just go to the podcast app that you listen to this podcast on leave feedback, subscribe, and leave a rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are for people to discover this project, which I see more and more and more. They found the project. That means it popped up somewhere. The more ratings we have, the more visible they are. So the other thing I always urge you guys to do is take social media, use it for good. Each one of these incredible men and women lend an hour, hour and a half, two hours of their time to share this information for free. So all I ask you, the audience, to do is help me by sharing. Social media, email, word of mouth, however you can do it, people out there need to hear these incredible stories. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dave Durante. Today, firstly, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Brilliant. Well, you're making up the trifecta now. I had Chris and I had Ch- uh, Chad, so I feel like this is uh, finishing the trinity. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm glad I was number three, so I can <laughs> kind of hear what everybody else said, and I can make sure that I uh, apply appropriately and uh, respond appropriately. Brilliant. Yeah, I think this is going to be a, a, an interesting discussion from the gymnastic perspective. So, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I am actually in my home, which is a rarity these days, but I'm uh, in Portland, Oregon. I moved from New York City about a year and a half ago, and I still have the apartment out in New York and bounce back and forth, but uh, Portland has uh, become home base now. Ah, yeah, because you coached at Solace, is that right? Yep, yep. I've been at Solace since its opening. Um, we still consider Solace kind of home base for for everything Power Monkey related, and I'm there, you know, at least a couple of days each month. Uh, but my wife is from Portland and we have a little baby girl now. And, um, you know, we just need a little additional help. And living in New York City with a baby was not the easiest thing in the world. So kind of uh, moved out here to help make the family a little bit easier. Brilliant. And how have you found the move from the hustle and bustle of New York to, to somewhere as seemingly calm as Portland? Yeah, it's definitely different. I uh, I love New York City. I grew up, you know, just outside of the city of New Jersey, and I've just always loved the energy. I I have a tendency to kind of move at that pace of just like a million miles an hour every day. So um, leaving was a little bit tough, but I've actually found Portland to be just incredible. Like loving it much more than I was anticipating. It's such an outdoorsy and fit. Uh, fit forward kind of a city, you know, Nike, Under Armour, Adidas all have some kind of headquarters here. So there's a lot of fitness going on here. It's it's a great city. I, I really enjoy it. Fantastic. All right. Well, then speaking of, of your upbringing, so I'd like to start at the very beginning. So where were you born exactly in New Jersey? And then what was your family unit like? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I grew up in Garwood, New Jersey, which is a tiny town. It's just one square mile. Uh, it's about, I don't know, 12 miles away from New York City. So uh, it's fairly close to, um, you know, what's going on in Manhattan. 
but uh, I had a very, um, I would say probably idyllic childhood. I had um, great parents who were very, very uh, supportive of everything that I did. My my parents uh, are uh, from Italian uh, descent, so I'm an Italian citizen. Uh, my dad uh, came to the U.S. Um, when he married my mom. My mom was born in the U.S., but her parents and basically all of my family are from the same small village in Italy. Uh, it's about three hours southeast of Rome. And I grew up kind of spending my summers there. And most of my family growing up in Rome, um, they grew up there. My dad grew up in Rome. All of his sisters, all of my cousins still live in Rome. So uh, the Italian culture and, you know, being an Italian-American was very close to how I grew up, you know, big families, big family get togethers, big, big meals, that kind of stuff. But, uh, we were very, very close. I have a, a, an older brother and a younger sister who I'm still very close with both still live in New Jersey, very close to the house that we grew up in. Uh, but I would say it was the kind of childhood that, uh, you imagine, um, wanting to have, you know, we were really close, you know, we had our bumps and bruises growing up kind of, you know, as siblings do, but it was the kind of thing that, um, I look back and I just feel very fortunate to have the childhood that I did. Brilliant. Well, interesting observation. And so not only did you come from a family that understood kind of the value of the, the kitchen table, but you also grew up in a small town where a community seems to be found more easier, uh, more easily, excuse me. Did you find a lack of community once you transition to a big city because it's it's an observation that i've seen is that that community whether it's cell phones or you know whatever it is that that we've disconnected somewhat in society and yet it seems like for example the firehouse where you know my background where there's a a, a group of people that are banded together and understand things like you know eating together where you're able to kind of resolve some of those issues so what was that polarizing like for you going to somewhere like new york where one might think that there wasn't as much community. Well, I, I would say this. I would say that, you know, wherever I've gone, I've tried to seek out community. I've just, I've tried to seek out people that I can sit and have a meal with or sit and feel like I have something in common with, or even if I don't have something in common with, just someone that I can speak to and feel like I'm being listened to and feel that I can listen to someone and, and just kind of share thoughts. And uh, it's always been something that I've learned from a young age because of how close of a family I've had. And I didn't go straight from, you know, New Jersey straight to New York City. Uh, in fact, I moved all the way across the country and I went from New Jersey to California. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go compete for Stanford University. So I went from a really small town to a, you know, college atmosphere where uh, my next community was my team. And so my seeking out of that in a new environment came in the form of my gymnastics team when I was in college. Uh, brilliant. Now, you mentioned your dad coming from Italy. What did he end up doing in the States? So my dad was a civil engineer. Uh, he helped build a lot of the things on the East Coast with regards to infrastructure. He built a lot of the bridges on the Turnpike in Jersey, and uh, he helped build Shea Stadium where the Mets used to play back in the day uh, and a few other structures, both in New Jersey and New York. So he was a very kind of um, math forward, very analytical, very practical and pragmatic kind of guy. No nonsense. Um, really difficult to get him to smile. But when he did, it kind of lit up the whole day. Um, he was a, a brilliant guy, kind of fix it all. You know, he just knew how to do things just from figuring them out. Uh, he was able to retire at a young age because we um, he purchased some apartment complexes and things like that and was a landlord. 
but he was um, a very, very impressive man. He uh, didn't show his emotion very much, but a very impressive guy. Brilliant. And, and your mother, what did she do? My mom, um, growing up, you know, she was a Jersey girl growing up. Uh, also uh, spent a lot of her time in Italy as well. Uh, but she worked for CBS uh, for a long time in the city. And um, after she had her first child, my brother, uh, she retired from CBS and moved back to Jersey and was our caretaker. And she was um, uh, maintained our home and cooked our meals and was uh, as ideal of a mom as I could uh, ever have hoped for. She's fantastic. She takes care of us still to this day more than you know anyone I've ever met in my life. So she makes sure that the family is basically held together. Yeah. Brilliant. Now, you didn't mention that either of your parents were Olympic level gymnasts. So obviously, I'm going to have to ask then. So <laughs> what was your road into gymnastics originally? Uh, no, uh, neither of them, you know, uh, were Olympic level athletes. But my dad did play soccer his whole life in Italy uh, and actually went to some rather high levels within uh, some of the Rome uh, teams. And uh, was always soccer was always kind of the um, the sport we always gravitated towards growing up. My, my brother played soccer at a higher level. Um, my mom did a bunch of sports growing up, but um, never really achieved anything very high with, with her athletics. Uh, but I just love sports growing up. Uh, I played baseball, basketball, soccer for a long time. Like I mentioned, I wrestled for a long time. And gymnastics was just one of the ones that I participated in. I was really fortunate that like right down the road from my house, just really like a couple of blocks, was one of the best boys gymnastics programs in the entire country. The gym was Surgeon's Elite, and they were always known for their boys' gymnastics, which is really, really rare. And um, it was in kind of walking distance from my house, and uh, I was kind of jumping around the furniture in my house, and my mom didn't want me breaking her stuff. So she threw me into the gym, and um, it kind of stuck. It was something that I really enjoyed doing. I loved the idea of not only flipping and you know doing some of the really cool, intricate kind of um, things you see little kids running around doing, but I love the idea of how challenging it was and being able to do stuff that the people around me weren't able to do. So gymnastics always challenged me more than the other sports, and I love that. I love the idea of, okay, this is so difficult. How do we figure this out, and how do we become so capable at it um, after seeing that it was like so daunting at first and being able to overcome it. Yeah. And I heard you mention in another interview that through your perception as an athlete, through your career, you didn't feel like you were one of the, the gifted ones per se, like you really had to work hard at it. Was that something you observed even when you were very young? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I think anything I've ever done, I've never found anything to come easy. Um, it's been, you know, a in a lot of ways, it's been a blessing because it's forced me to find a path of the things that I really enjoy doing and figuring out ways to become, you know, not only proficient, but try to excel at it. And gymnastics was no different. I was from a young age all the way through to the end of my career. I was surrounded by people better than me uh, constantly from a young age. It's less noticeable. But as soon as, as soon as you start competing, as soon as you start getting onto a level where you have to perform and you have to show your skills in relation to the people next to you, it was evident. You know, I was good. I was athletic. And I think, you know, playing a lot of sports helped with uh, being able to, you know, apply my strengths. Uh, but in terms of pure talent, I would say that I was across the board average, if not below average in, in most of the uh, the things needed. But 
where I excelled was one, how much I wanted to, to, to be good at gymnastics. I wanted to be the best. I, I wanted to be better than the guy next to me so badly that I was willing to do basically anything that they were willing to do and much more. I just wanted, wanted it so badly that the sacrifices that I wanted to make would, you know, go well beyond anything uh, that my competitors were willing to do. And so from an early age, I just, I love that challenge. I love being able to push myself more than anyone else. I, I really wanted to be the first one in and the last one out. And uh, that kind of like ended up being the, the mentality that I applied to other areas of my life as well. Right. Now, what was your your road as far as your competitive um, journey? Uh, so I was on a club team, like I said, Surgeon Salid in Jersey up until I went to college. And I was uh, recruited by a bunch of different universities. I went on recruiting trips to University of Oklahoma and Michigan and Illinois and uh, checked out some of the other big powerhouse schools in the country. But uh, the only school that I really wanted to go to was Stanford University. I um, had fallen in love with the school when I was 13 years old. I went out to California for a competition and I got to tour Stanford's campus uh, and I fell in love with it. And I was like, man, I was like, if I could ever get to a point where I was uh, not only, you know, uh, from a sports and a gymnastics perspective, but also from an academic perspective, capable of getting in here, I would absolutely jump at the opportunity. So uh, I actually only applied to Stanford um, and I was fortunate enough to get in. I really don't know how it happened, to be honest with you. I don't see myself academically anywhere near where the kids that I was, you know, in a dorm with or in classes with um, on their level. Uh, but I jumped at the opportunity. I was ecstatic to to be a part of that team and to be part of that university. And uh, to this day, it's still one of the uh, great decisions of my life to be able to have gone to Stanford. Um, after I graduated, I stuck around Stanford for another couple of years and trained for the 04 Olympic team, which I just missed out on. And then uh, after 04, I moved to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, where I lived there for four and a half years, where I trained for Team USA. And uh, during that time, I was on a bunch of national teams and uh, was national champion a few times on a few world championship teams. And that led me to being part of the team that went to Beijing in 2008 uh, as the alternate. And then after that, I moved back to Stanford and help coach the team to a national championship in 2009. And that kind of initiated the coaching phase of my life after I retired from the competitive side of things. Right. So just to flip it on the other side then. So you obviously achieved an incredibly high level winning national titles and, and being an alternate in the, in the Olympic team. What from your perspective, because I had some people on here that almost peaked you know to the, the highest highest level and then and then got to where they were and obviously there you know that was still an incredible achievement for them with through your perspective what was it that was the difference between almost making the team and you know and then and then ultimately winning a gold and just you know being that that one click below the absolute hmm. best of the entire planet well um i'd say that when you reach that that absolute highest level uh, what you find is that the things that separated me early on, um, and it ends up becoming more common, right? You end up seeing a lot more athletes being willing to put in the time to be willing to, you know, understand all of the little detail aspects that go into being the elite of the elite. Um, but I wasn't really so concerned about 
winning. Like, of course I wanted to win. Of course I wanted to, to, um, be on the top of that podium, every competition that I ever went into. Uh, but I was more concerned about what I could, um, change and what I, the, the things in my gymnastics that, um, allowed me to reach my maximum potential, my maximum human potential. That was the thing that we always talked about and that, that I tried to strive for because I recognized that, you know, there were some, you know, Japanese gymnasts and Russian gymnasts and Chinese gymnasts and American gymnasts that I would never be able to compete, uh, from a talent level or, you know, from the skills that they were able to perform. Um, but I wanted to reach my maximum human potential. I wanted to be able to get as close to what I was capable of doing on every event from a physical standpoint, from a mental standpoint, and then leave it all out there. And if someone was better than me, um, even after me having done everything in my power to achieve uh, that top of the podium, then it just wasn't meant to be. So the thing that I'm most grateful for out of everything that I've achieved in my career is to be able to say that I leave the, that I, I left the sport and I retired at the end of Beijing with having absolutely zero regrets. I have no regrets. I didn't, I wouldn't change anything. I feel like I did everything from a nutritional standpoint, from a sleep perspective, from a mental aspect, from a physical standpoint. I did everything that I possibly could to achieve my, my maximum potential. And to me, that, that's the level of success that I wanted to achieve. See, and I absolutely love it. I'm so glad I asked that question because in, in our environment now, whether it's seeing people on Instagram or you know, even at your local CrossFit gym, um, and then the, the rhetoric that's being thrown about uh, participation trophies, there's this kind of image that all these people are better than you, so why even bother? I'm not going to win. Everyone's told me I shouldn't participate. I won't even get a trophy unless I'm wearing a gold medal around my neck. And, and it really drives me crazy because to me, it discourages the other 99.9% of the planet who's probably never going to be on an Olympic podium, but still, as you said, could reach an incredible level with their own potential. And shifting that focus from what athlete X can do, whether it's Rich Froning or, you know, Mike Tyson, mm -hmm. and to your own journey, I think is, is a shift that I'm starting to see now, for example, in CrossFit, where forget what everyone else is doing. You are on your own journey and use these great athletes as, as mentors and teachers but understand that the only person you're competing with is yourself. Yeah, and gymnastics allows for that because, you know, it, it's an individual sport in a lot of ways. I consider gymnastics more of a team sport uh, just because of the nature of kind of how you compete in college and how you compete as part of Team USA and things like that. But you're competing against yourself. Every time you go out there, you know, you're raising your hand, you're trying to maximize what you're capable of doing every time you touch one of those apparatus. And to me, it the end result has been not really why I participate. And uh, the end result of being on the podium um, is only kind of um, the icing, right? It's the thing that comes as a um, kind of like um, a benefit of all the things that you put in along the way. And I've always, I've always appreciated the journey more than the end. And that's, I think that's why I always like training so much. I always like training more than competing. I always love the, the grind. I always love going into the gym and kind of putting my head down and just going. And to me, that was always the fun part. I liked pushing through the, you know, the difficult moments when, 
you didn't want to be in the gym and, you know, it was clear that you weren't going to get something accomplished, but you were able to push, push through and get something done on those terrible days. And to me, that was the most motivating and told me that, you know what, if I can do something on these days that I don't want to be here, imagine what I can do in other areas and imagine what I can do when I'm just feeling okay and imagine what I can do when I'm feeling great. So to me, the training was, it basically taught me the kind of person that I wanted to be outside of the gym as well. And so it was so important for me to, to kind of take advantage of every day in the gym. And whatever happened in the end in terms of, uh, you know, medals and uh, where you finished and where the, where the placements were, that was always kind of um, neither here nor there for me. Like, I love the idea of standing on the podium and hearing your anthem being played and stuff like that. Of course, who doesn't want to win? Of course you want to win. But the journey to me is was more critical in terms of telling me who and teaching me who I am as a person rather than the accolades that came along with with that journey. Yeah. No, and I think it's so pertinent to a lot of people listening to this. I mean, we need to perform at the highest level when lives are at stake. But again, there's not going to be any podium or medals or anything. So you have to find that intrinsic self journey in this career because there there is no end goal and there's no cycling there's no you know peaking there's you have 10 20 30 years of grinding you know every single week because you don't know if your first year or your last year might be the the career defining event so i think that the mm -hmm. philosophy you're talking about is so much more pertinent to this audience than chasing you know the elite of the elite of a specific sport I completely agree. And I think maybe that's why even today, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, um, you know, work with the national teams after I retired for a decade and, you know, help pick the Olympic teams for the last couple Olympics and, and beyond, you know, the other side of it in terms of helping, um, you know, some of the elite athletes in the U.S. get to their um, highest peak potential. But, what I enjoy the most is working with the everyday athlete and the person that, you know, isn't uh, striving to be an Olympian, but they're just looking to get a little bit better each day. And I love that. I love that challenge. And I love seeing people who are excited about going in and, and just trying to become more capable. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, of just trying to get in every day and trying to become better for um, what they're trying to apply their fitness and trying to do uh, within their own specific careers. And um, to me, uh, I've been able to find a career path that allows me to do that. And I'm just, I, I love being able to do it. I wake up every day super excited about it. Brilliant. Yeah, well, I really want to explore that because I think the concept of the force multiplier really, you know, is is in play here as well, where before you were the one pursuing that, you know, set the place on the podium. And now with your experience, you're able to help an incredible amount of people. But, um, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so sorry. So, but before we get there, though, um, we share something in common where I have also um, been fortunate enough to ski in Innsbruck in Austria. <laughs> I left probably pieces of my face on the ski slope, but never actually oh, really? broke anything or tore anything. Um, but I know that was a kind of a, a defining moment in your journey. So I'd love to hear yeah. about that, and then and then how you overcame that, being such a high level athlete. Yeah, so uh, answer me this. Uh, did you go more down the slope more than one time? <laughs> I think I think I crushed your goals in, on my uh, trick. <laughs> the yeah, only time I, I've ever beaten Dave Durante at anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you put Snow and me together, and uh, I'm pretty sure anybody could beat me. But um, I've always had bad knees, and my legs have always been kind of the, the weak part of my body when it comes to my gymnastics. And I stayed away from, you know, I lived in Colorado, and 
you know, we take trips up to Aspen and Vail and Breckenridge and places like that all the time, you know, some of the most amazing ski locations in the U.S. And uh, I always stayed away from skiing while I was training because I didn't want to mess with, um, you know, potentially getting injured. Injured. And uh, I had blown out my knees twice um, during my gymnastics career, um, you know, ACL, MCL, meniscus, <clears throat> needed reconstruction, things like that. And uh, then when I was done, I moved to Europe and I was living in Italy, actually, and I uh, was visiting a bunch of friends from different gymnastics teams all around Europe and just using it as a time to kind of get my mindset and figure out what I wanted to do next in my life. And so I visited uh, my, one of my buddies on the Austrian gymnastics team and he was living in Innsbruck and his family had come from uh, kind of being ski instructors and uh, snowboarding instructors and things like that. And so he was very familiar with the slopes, obviously, and took me up there. And I was like, hey, I'm done with my gymnastics. I want to try to like test out new things. Why not try skiing? And so uh, he took me to the top of one of the slopes in Innsbruck. And, you know, I don't know if the listeners out there know, but Innsbruck has hosted two Winter Olympic Games. So this isn't quite, you know, starting uh, the bunny slope. Uh, this is some serious, uh, serious downhill stuff. Um, I wouldn't say that I was going down any, uh, you know, Olympic ski runs. But um, I stood at the top of that mountain and I was like, all right, well, I'm here. I'm going to give this a try. And uh, within the first 50 to 100 feet, I fell and I blew my knee out again. And uh, it was awful. It was uh, a really terrible way. But I knew right away that I had done it. I heard that pop. I heard that ACL just kind of, uh, you know, giving way as I've uh, become accustomed to feeling and hearing prior. And um, I actually had to climb back up to the top of the mountain because I, um, the ski patrol was going to charge me to come get me. And, uh, I couldn't make my way down the mountain since I only went down, you know, a hundred feet or so. So I climbed back up and had to take ski lift back down and made my way eventually back to Rome where I had my third surgery. It was the uh, first one on my right knee and, uh, had to do recovery and rehab and everything like that in Rome. So, it was a much different experience than having surgery and recovery in the U.S., but uh, was something looking back now that it became kind of a um, an interesting change and kind of led me to where I am today. Yeah, well, just hearing that you went skiing with a guy whose parents both were ski teachers, and the first thing he did is take you to the top of a inappropriate yeah. slope. Thank God he never followed his parents' footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a fucking awful instructor to me. <laughs> I think maybe you just thought like, oh, you know, he's a good athlete. And I like to think of myself as a pretty good athlete in most cases, but I've always just shied away from, you know, anything that fixes my feet like that. I always just, it just makes my knees like uh, cringe. So in any case, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was a pretty horrific way to start out, um, being on the slopes and I haven't, I haven't touched the ski since. Right. Well then, so the journey I've, I've had, um, pretty much in about a six year span, I, I tore my back. Um, and then found a thing called foundation training, which is a movement practice, which actually healed it, which was amazing. And I've had a meniscus tear on either side, each knee. Um, and each of those has led me in a journey to obviously you want to, you want to fix what it is, but then you want to reverse engineer. Well, why the hell did I get hurt? Especially, you know, for me, I'm not doing elite level athletics per se, but obviously as a firefighter, we're not sleeping every third day. I think it's more the recovery side that ends up getting a lot of us hurt what was your journey like after that injury as far as um going from competitive gymnastics to now you know looking at your own movement and then ultimately 
what you ended up doing as far as teaching the average person? Yeah, so funny enough, um, you know, when I tore my knees while I was training, you know, you have access to, you know, PTs and doctors and, you know, therapies and you can recover much more quickly because you're anticipating getting back to the competition floor. Um, the whole process in Rome was completely bonkers, totally different. Like, you know, you tear a knee in the U.S., it's outpatient, you're in, you're out, same day, you're already starting recovery that, that uh, next day. Um, in Rome, um, having been a citizen and having healthcare set up, uh, fortunately it was free, which was amazing. Uh, but it was, I was in the hospital nine days for a surgery that was outpatient in the States. So I was there like four days before the surgery, just prepping for it, which is crazy. And then I was there for another five days after the surgery. So already I was like, in a completely different mindset than when I had this, uh, the surgeries in the States. From there, I started with a therapist that normally deals with, you know, uh, the everyday person who's dealing from, you know, whatever kind of injury they're dealing with. It's not a sports-related PT. So I would go in there and there would be these women, like, you know, just hanging out. It would just be talking. It wouldn't really be any therapy. And I would be, like, going crazy. Like, I was training for the Olympics again. And I just had this mentality of, I want to get back to, you know, doing whatever I was doing from a fitness perspective as quickly as possible. And I just put myself back into the athlete mode, even though I was in the setting where it was just not right. Like everybody would be like, oh my God, what is he doing? Like, why is he in here right now? So I started doing therapy there and just kind of like, I would stay in therapy five hours a day. I didn't have anything else to do. I didn't have anywhere else to be. So I would stay in, ther in therapy in Rome for five hours and I would just, you know, I'd do three hours in the morning, I'd have lunch, I'd go back in the afternoon and do another few hours and I was like, I don't have anything else to do so this is just where I'm going to live. So um, I used that as an opportunity to kind of get back more quickly than, um, you know, most people might in that type of a setting and it led me to a gymnastics gym in Rome um, where I started doing some basic gymnastics again in this really, really small gym in the middle of Rome. And, um, from there I started coaching little kids while I was doing my recovery and my cousin was, a was doing gymnastics there at the time. And so, um, I started coaching the little kids and I started enjoying it and I really didn't think I wanted to be a coach at all, but the injury, the rehab, starting to coach these little kids got me back into the mode of saying, you know what, maybe I have a little bit more in me in terms of passing on what I learned over the course of 20 plus years being an athlete and maybe actually uh, teaching these things is what is something I actually want to do. So the injury actually forced me into a path that I wasn't intending. See, that's interesting. And with the PT thing, I think that's what a lot of first responders find themselves um, experiencing as well, where we are you know, tactical athletes and expected to do, at times, very, very demanding uh, movements. And I know from personal experience, I live in a place called Ocala in Florida, and it's a very... You know, the whole state is full of retirees. So when you go to rehab, normally you're like, well, if you didn't break your hip, then you're doing well. <laughs> so right. You're right. not quite Same understanding thing. what I need to be able to do. So they'd give me, you know, the stretchy bands. I'm like, no, I need to be able to carry 100 pounds up. 28 flights of stairs. We got to do some work here. So yep. it's interesting hearing that you had the same experience there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I can imagine that, you know, the setting was very similar. It was not, you know, anything that you would ever imagine in terms of sports specific training, but, um, 
I just, you know, put my my blinders on and did what I had to do. And fortunately, um, was able to heal that n- knee up much more quickly than I think uh, even the PTs were anticipating. Right. Well, before we go on to the next step, because I really want to you know, explore that then. Um, one quick thing. You, you, let me say you, as an Englishman coming to America, there's so many people of my age now and younger that have the same story. I was a baseball player. I was a football player before I blew out this, that and the other. Um, and it, you know, it, you can't help but look at it and go, what are we doing wrong with teaching our children? Why are these, you know, 17 year olds, 18 year olds have already had reconstructive knee surgery or shoulder surgery or, you know, whatever. So in your entire span as a child athlete through to now, you know, experienced coaching kids, what have we, what have you in, in the gymnastics world changed um, to improve the longevity of these athletes? I think that's a really good question. So, I mean, we're talking a lot about injuries right now, but I would say that um, my experience as an athlete, I was actually relatively healthy uh, in my career compared to a lot of others. Um, and that, you know, I've, I've had a lot of knee injuries and those are kind of the main ones that I had to deal with personally. But for the most part, uh, I didn't have a lot of things happen to me until much later in my career. And I was able to compete until I was 28, 29 years old, which is actually fairly old for a gymnast. Uh, I was kind of the old man on the team at the end of my career and things like that. So I look at my career as even though I did have some serious injuries, um, as a relatively healthy one. Now, with that being said, I think it's important to note that if you're going to do a sport for 20 plus years, that injuries are fairly inevitable. Um, it's a part of the sport. It's more about managing and dealing with them as they come about. But what your I think your question has to do with more of what we're seeing today. Um, you know, I'm turning 40 this next year. I'm getting a little bit older now. And the way that we did things growing up are much different than what I'm seeing athletes go through today. Meaning that, you know, I did a ton of sports, like I mentioned, and you end up playing a lot more outside. I think the athletes that we're seeing growing up right right now are funneled into sports at such a young age and become so sports specific at 10, 11, 12 years old that they end up creating potentially more injury prone um, tendencies than athletes of my generation. And the reason for that is because they're ending up putting stress on joints repetitively um, through this sport-specific training that ends up creating ligament damage and tendon damage uh, and other soft tissue damage prior to them going through puberty uh, that doesn't allow them to fully develop those joints to be able to have some longevity that comes along with it. So, I mean, as a reference, something like baseball, like why are there so many Tommy John surgeries? Why are there so many shoulder and elbow injuries that we didn't see back in the day? I think a lot of cases it has to do with this amount of training and amount of sports specific training that you're seeing at such a young age that we didn't have growing up. So I think the injuries are still there, but they're just slightly different because of the ways that kids are training these days. Yeah, that that, that makes perfect sense. And I think I've had a few people on here that have have all agreed with each other, basically, that it seems like the multi-sport athletes, children and older um, just do a lot better because, as you're saying, you're not getting that singular repetitive motion over and over again. And then the strength and agility from all these different disciplines are then also carrying over and, and adding more stability to the athlete in that one sport that they're playing now. Without a doubt. And I mean, I'm going to give a little plug to gymnastics right now, but um, definitely testing out and playing a lot of different sports. But a 
an incredible foundation for most kids is the sport of gymnastics. And I think whether or not you go on to compete at gymnastics at a high level uh, does not matter. I think most kids would benefit from a couple of years in gymnastics growing up to learn coordination, to learn some core strength, to learn how to move within space and, and be able to um, understand how to use their body appropriately and then apply that to, you know, using external um, modalities and external tools like a bat, like a barbell. I think uh, gymnastics just goes such a long way in being able to teach people how to use their bodies correctly. Yeah, and I agree from the other end. I mean, I, I was not a gymnast as a kid. I, I literally, I, I think it was 20 years old. I could do one pull-up. I could never do a handstand, couldn't climb a rope, and learn all those you know, years later, basically, through CrossFit. So we'll get mm -hmm. to CrossFit in a minute. But I think there's a lot of people out there that hadn't when they were kids and, and think that it's too late now, and it absolutely isn't. So Not at all. Not at all. And I, that's actually the two things. So with all the teaching that we do uh, all around the world, the two comments that I get the most when we're done are, man, I wish my parents would have put me in gymnastics as a kid and I can't wait to put my kids in gymnastics. And to me, that tells me that, you know, like we're moving in the right direction in terms of uh, people seeing the benefit of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing as well is is those movements that you guys do have been around for for so, so long, you know, whereas the bodybuilding machine type that you and I kind of grew up around, you know, was really just a few decades old and I think, you know, is great for the sport of bodybuilding, but obviously creates so many imbalances for other movement practices. Mm -hmm. Right. So then um, when were you actually introduced to CrossFit? So uh, after um, I retired and I moved back to Stanford, I started, you know, you know, training on my own uh, as I was prepping the guys for, you know, their days of training and I uh, started doing my own kind of circuits. Um, and I got a little bored with the stuff I was coming up with and I searched online and I found CrossFit online and I started doing it on my own. And then a buddy of mine, uh, had a garage gym that was an early affiliate in about 2010 and yeah, yep, 2010. And, uh, so I started working out with him and it kind of snowballed from there. I started to do some teaching here and there and then, um, we started to make our ring thing, which is our ring training apparatus to kind of help people um, understand some ring movements. And uh, I got asked by CrossFit through Dave Castro to come out to Santa Cruz to shoot some videos for uh, CrossFit HQ. And uh, it just became bigger and bigger and bigger from there. So it was almost 10 years ago now, which is kind of crazy to think about. Uh, but it all came about after my gymnastics career and just figuring out ways to stay uh, competitive, want to stay fit and uh, finding the sport of CrossFit and seeing that they put such an emphasis on gymnastics, it kind of just drew me to it. Yeah, yeah it was a funny story, actually. When um, I started working out uh, 2007 with CrossFit, and there was a friend that had one of the, went to one of the early gyms, um, and he showed us at our fire station, and we started doing it. And then I moved back to Florida, and you know, no one had really seen, no one knew what it was. So there were some rings hanging up by another guy in town that also had started it, and my God, I mean, the, the, the sniggers and the, you know, the, the whispering about the stuff that we were doing in there, people were just like, what the hell are these idiots doing? Oh, and yeah. I've told the story a few times, but now, you know, fast forward three or four years later when it's on the, on the TV now and everyone's like, Hey bro, can you show me this? And I'm like, okay. So basically just cause it doesn't look cool to you, it's shit. But a few years later, now all of a sudden 
you know, it, it's interesting, the perception, even though I knew it was a great movement practice and the gymnastics side was, was awesome. Um, you know, it was ridiculed until people understood it, then it went the complete opposite way. Yeah, you end up seeing that with a lot of things, right? People are always kind of shying away from something they don't know uh, until it becomes a little more mainstream and then everybody's willing to jump on board. But um, yeah, it's really 2007, man. You've been around for a while doing this. Yeah, I mean, the problem is that's a lot of, uh, we'll talk about this later, but a lot of bad movement patterns too because it wasn't under the guidance <laughs> of a professional. So sure. it's from the main site and videos. Um, all right, well then, you, you mentioned the ring thing. I want to give a plug for that for the moment. Um we have an adaptive athlete, Charlotte Merle Smith, who's been at the Wheel World Games several times now. Um, and I actually told her about the ring thing. She ended up buying one and that's a great tool for her. And then we've, you know, we've used it with the, um, able body or whatever the correct term is, um, in the gym as well. But tell, tell people listening about that. Cause I think it's an amazing tool for people, you know, learning anything on the rings really. Yeah, so me and my partner Shane Garrity, who is a former gymnast as well, uh, something that, you know, you go to most gymnastics gyms, you're going to find some version of this where people just go to a hardware store and pick a bunch of crap and put it together. Uh, but essentially, it works through a pulley system where you put a harness around your waist and then you hang rings through a pulley. And as you pull down on the rings, it lifts your body off the ground at 50% of your body weight. So in the gymnastics world, we use this as kind of a, a warm-up tool, uh, something that allows us to work on perfecting positions with regards to strength-based movements on rings. And we just looked at it as potentially something that could have a ton of benefit for people wanting to learn ring movements uh, in a CrossFit setting. And so um, we shopped it around to a bunch of diff different equipment manufacturers and uh, PowerMonkey, our company, um, was actually an existing company down in Florida. And... They were making, it was a mom and pop shop that were making some rigs and some other uh, equipment and they were willing to make the ring thing for us. And for a number of years, uh, I became kind of a traveling salesman, uh, just kind of slinging these over my shoulder and, you know, walking around the gyms and seeing if anybody was interested in purchasing them. But it's actually turned into a pretty significant tool for a lot of people in terms of training. We have a, a whole curriculum and a certification for it now. Uh, it's actually in... Um, crunch gyms all over the country now. Uh, they have a class with it, uh, with our teachings and things like that. So it's actually become quite a cool tool for not only CrossFitters, not only people learning how to um, learn gymnastics movements, but also in general fitness now. And, um, you know, I love it seeing, uh, seeing it being used, obviously, by able body athletes, but also by adaptive athletes, because it's such an incredible tool for them to be able to get up on the rings and be able to actually, we have a bar attachment too for them to be able to work on strict pulling work and bar muscle ups and things like that. So for me, it's just been an incredible tool that we've taken from the gymnastics world and being able to apply to general fitness. And um, we uh, we think it's just a really, really great way and a great starting point to learn good technique. Yeah. And I have to say, like I said, I've, I've seen it used by adaptive athletes. I've used it myself. Um, and it really is a great tool. I didn't realize there was a bar one, though. So I have to uh, tell Charlotte about that. Yeah, yeah, we we don't really promote it so much, but uh, we do have some uh, bars uh, that you can kind of attach to the rings and use it as a single, you know, static apparatus as opposed to having the rings independent. But yep, we have that as well. Brilliant. Well, you mentioned Shane. I'd love to hear about how you guys met because I know it was at a Victoria's Secret fashion show. So <laughs> that sounds like yeah. an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. So Shane, Shane doesn't like the, the the spotlight, which is surprising because you know he works in Hollywood a lot. He was a gymnast uh, in college, went to Syracuse. Um, but he really doesn't like talking about his background or being in front of the camera very much, but the guy is just amazing. He's, he's, uh, you know, one of my closest friends. He's, he's basically family at this point. And, um, back in 2010, when I moved back from Italy, 
Um, I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. I was living in New York at the time and he was living there as well. And he had a production company that, uh, you know, hired athletes and performers for certain events. And, uh, he got asked to bring on and, uh, hire athletes, gymnasts for the Victoria's Secret show in 2010. And so, uh, he, you know, brought me out for an audition and we ended up getting the gig and uh, got to perform down the runway, doing gymnastics on the stage and down the runway with the uh, Victoria's Secret models. And uh, it was quite an experience, quite an experience. There's uh, some pretty hilarious stories that come along with with that particular event. But that's how I was introduced to my partner, who, um, who you know, obviously has become part of my family. And it was quite a start, quite a start. Yeah, sounds like it. Now, I want to get into the, the Power Monkey side now, but one more thing I looked on, on the bio, and I think this needs to be talked about too, is Shane has a project called Shine. I'd love to hear about that and, and what he's doing in the community. Yeah, absolutely. So Shine is not Shane's project specifically, but Shane does a lot with it. Uh, Shine is a project uh, by a former tumbler, a former power tumbler in the US. His name's Ray Shine Harris. And Ray Shine's from New Jersey, from Newark. And uh, the Shine program is his. It's basically um, a program that was started in the inner city in Newark to allow uh, some of the inner city kids an opportunity to find gymnastics and find tumbling. And uh, it's been incredible uh, for the kids of that community. Ray Shine is an absolute monster of an athlete. Ray Shine Harris is a world champion um, from Newark, New Jersey, which uh, does not have a lot of these types of athletes come out of it. He actually, funny enough, growing up in New Jersey, uh, growing up, you know, 10 minutes from Newark, um, I actually had met Ray Shine when I was 13, 14 years old. He used to come over to my gym and they used to tumble with us on our gymnastics floors. And um, I just remember him and his his other athletes coming in and tumbling and just being in awe and just being like, this is unreal. Like they weren't gymnasts. They were power tumblers that were just basically learning how to tumble on mattresses and things like that. And they were able to do things that gymnasts never thought possible. And I remember seeing him specifically and being like, how is this even like possible? I just couldn't believe what he was doing. And, you know, he was just a special athlete. And he went on to being, uh, you know, part of Team USA for a number of years and being world champion. And uh, he started the Shine program now that's become a really, really great resource for the kids of that community. And um, I'm just proud of what he's doing. And he's still performing and still doing things. And he's in his 40s now, still just a kick-ass athlete, and uh, he's an amazing guy. If you can uh, follow him and follow the Shine Tumblers, I think uh, it's a program worth supporting. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Um, all right, so then speaking of Power Monkey, so so we kind of cut off the story a bit short. So you were training kids. Um, I'm assuming at one point you realized how, especially with the CrossFit movement, there was this real des- this desire to learn gymnastics. But then I know I saw as, as a an athlete and then ultimately a coach that there was also a lack of understanding from us, the coaches, as far as how to teach. So what did you see the need and then and then what made you decide to actually create Power Monkey as far as a teaching modality as well? Sure. So, um, one, I just really enjoyed doing CrossFit. I love going in the gym. I love, um, the challenge that comes along with, uh, learning new movements, but you're right that I saw a lot of need for, uh, understanding how to move with better technique and with better movement patterns. And, uh, I know, you know, you see this on the weightlifting side as well, but you know, the people within those specific sports that have been doing it for a number of their entire lives, 
uh, kind of fall into two categories. You either have the the old school people who looked at CrossFit movements and look look at people kind of cycling through snatches and saying, what the hell are they doing? Like, why are they doing that movement so poorly? They're bastardizing our sport. This is shit. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Same thing on the gymnastics side. You know, people doing muscle ups and, you know, broken positions and, you know, chicken winging muscle ups and stuff like that. And people looking at the movement and saying they're doing it terribly. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And then you have another group of people who are saying, look at people picking up a barbell for the first time. Look at people setting up rings in the gym for the first time. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to help grow our sports and for us to be able to show people how great of a sport gymnastics and weightlifting and endurance training and all of these things are uh, for people who didn't grow up with it. And that's the camp that I wanted to be in. And um, myself and Chad Vaughn, uh, who you mentioned earlier, who, you know, uh, has been a part of Power Monkey for a long time and we've been doing seminars for a number of years, we both looked at it in the same way. We both looked at these new athletes as an opportunity to help them understand how to move better. So Power Monkey was kind of grew out of this idea of technique mattering. Like that's kind of our motto, that technique matters. So we wanted to build a program and build a knowledge base around how do we get these people to understand the benefit of moving more efficiently. Now, it might force us to take people back a few steps and, you know, refine some things. And the, this idea of you're hearing endlessly from coaches who uh, come from sports specific worlds of slowing down, right? Slow down. Let's move back a few steps and just slow down your movement pattern. Let's understand what your body is doing and then let's ramp up the intensity once you can actually move your body more accordingly, more appropriately. So for me, I love the idea of being able to bring gymnastics to people that didn't grow up with it. And it was a way for me to give back to the sport, but not do it at a competitive level and not, you know, teach little kids or not uh, coach at the collegiate level or the national team level, but tackle um, growing the sport from a completely new perspective. And to me, it wasn't really being done. And it allowed me to create a new avenue uh, for teaching and for exposing people uh, to how amazing of a sport gymnastics can be. Um, through the sport of CrossFit, through the sport of, um, you know, what you're doing on a regular basis uh, with gymnastics movement, but in a completely new way. Yeah. And as an athlete myself, like I said, I was a kid, couldn't do like anything, like really anything. And I was a strong kid for, I I was a very, very small kid, but I was a farm boy. So like manual labor stuff, I could muck out, you know, stables and carry hay bales and all that stuff, wrangle horses. But when it came to that kind of thing, I couldn't. And then fast forward to being in my, what was I then, mid-30s when I found CrossFit, it began a new journey. And then, and then you know, I started getting pull-ups and then rope climbs and then legless rope climbs and strict muscle-ups, which I'm going to tell you right now, I can do two or three strict muscle-ups with good form. I, the damn bar muscle-up, kipping bar muscle-up still is my nemesis. <laughs> I cannot get that fucking thing yet. Um, we'll fix that for you too. Yeah, thank you. Um, but but the journey has been amazing. What I tell my athletes and the ones that I coach, I do more of a kind of uh, strongman style, more of a, a tactical athlete type class that I teach. But to me, you know, moving a pin down on a machine, no disrespect to, you know, anyone that, that works out in those, you can't you can't compare that to your first handstand, your first rope climb, your first muscle up, your first, you know, forward roll, whatever it is. So I think that the element of gymnastics for the average person 
is overcoming that fear of being upside down, of, of spinning, you know, whatever it is. But then the the achievement of getting your body to do something you thought you never could, to me, is so rewarding versus, you know, throwing another, you know, pound and a half plate on, on a snatch. So that, I think, is a, a big buy-in for anyone who's brave enough to say, you know, I know I didn't do it as a kid, but today's the day I'm going to take that journey. Yeah, and I, I think you're right in a lot of ways uh, with the the achievement side of performing something your body with your body that you never thought possible. I will say that, um, that barrier of entry is a little bit bigger in gymnastics, meaning that, um, it takes much longer for people to, uh, find some of those successes on the gymnastics side. And the process is a little bit slower sometimes. And the achievements are sometimes a little bit more nebulous, meaning, you know, you can put, you know, a pound on the side of the bar and a pound on that side of the bar and see that you can lift more than you were able to last week. And so people can actually visibly see the progress on the weightlifting side and appreciate that kind of stepping stone process a little bit more easily than they do on the gymnastics side. But um, gymnastics is just about time. It's about understanding that progress really is about consistency and it's about getting in the gym and really appreciating the process. We have a a big thing kind of written on the wall in the Stanford gym of just take pride in the process. Take pride in the process. I, I love that mentality of understanding that things just don't happen overnight and they take really a long time to develop. Uh, but what you get at the end of that road is so worth the journey that to me it's it's one of those things that if you can if you can commit to the the um the time and the uh the energy needed to achieve some of those higher level things at the end result but will be worth it. Yeah. And I think that's just, I, I honestly think that's what we need though right now as a society. We we've have everything so fast. I mean, I can, God, I can order something on Amazon and in certain towns it will come the same day. You know what I mean? I can drive through and get a burger given to me within three minutes. But I think that, you know, then I think this is the same in weightlifting. I think people just end up throwing too much weight on too quickly and, and then you know that can obviously lead to some some injuries as well but i think keep pulling on the reins gating us back as as a you know a community of athletes and saying look there is work to be done and you can't do james you can't do a bar muscle up if you don't have the strength to do a straight arm you know pull or you know all these areas um so i can see how that's a barrier of entry but i think it's also something that we as coaches have to you know, portray to these people, like, you're not going to be PRing every day, <laughs> you know, this is going to be a slower process. But the payback is that shoulder pain that you've been fighting for years is going to start to go away, you know, you're going to be able to sit in a squat for longer and all, and all these things that they're going to see as a byproduct of pursuing whatever movements they're they're chasing. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, getting things quickly and getting things fast, uh, what you sacrifice is quality. And that can be the case for anything. You know, I can get a burger really fast too, but what I'm sacrificing is quality. Um, and that that's going to be the case in any aspect of your life. Um, I've just started, I've always kind of been interested in art and it's always been kind of my, my avenue to get my mind away from the competitive world when I was training. And I started working with, um, I've been trying to get into calligraphy and uh, I met with... Um, a calligrapher here in town who uh, has offered to help me and he's like, okay, the first step is going to be just to learn how to move the pen correctly. And he's like, you're going to go through reams and reams of paper of just moving up and down on a piece of paper before you can actually learn how to write a letter correctly. And 
it's going to take a ton of time, and I appreciate that in the same way that I'm trying to teach someone how to do a handstand. The same exact thing has to go into anything of quality that you're trying to do. So while, yes, you can get an Amazon package really quickly, or yes, you can get a burger really quickly, or a handstand even really quickly, where you're going to sacrifice is most likely quality uh, with regards to that speed. So if you want something that's going to last, if you want something that's going to be with you for a number of years in terms of how you move, you have to put in the time. Right. So then... As coaches, what are the things that we have been doing wrong? And this is a you know broad brush, obviously, as far as uh, the gymnastics. And then you know what are the things that you guys are programming and and teaching? And then some of the the other you know other gymnasts out there are doing the same thing that are, are correcting some of those issues now in, in the CrossFit world. Uh, I'd say first that you know it, you have to understand it's not easy. Uh, and what you're expecting kind of a CrossFit coach to do is a lot. Uh, there are so many different movements that you're expecting them to be professional uh, at teaching at. And whether it be in the rowing side or the endurance side or, um, you know, moving in gymnastics or, or weightlifting, there are so many movements that you're expecting these coaches to be not only proficient at, but to be able to teach people at a variety of different skill levels quickly at. So it's a daunting task. It's really not easy to do, uh, but it's imperative on the coaches to be able to um, take the time to learn and take the time to understand exactly uh, what goes into the movement patterns that they're going to be teaching. What we're doing, uh, you know, there's a lot that kind of we're, we're doing in terms of the coaches that we have on our staff um, with regards to our camps, things like that. But specifically on the gymnastics side, which is kind of my wheelhouse, what we're trying to do is break things down for people so that they understand kind of the stepping stones it's ta it takes to get to that end result. So when we look at any gymnastics movement, we look at it being broken down into a four-phase process. And each, each portions of these, these phases need to be done prior to moving on to the next phase. The first phase is absolutely critical with learning any movement. And it's about creation of correct body shapes. All right. Now, being able to create the correct body shapes will allow you to move on to our secondary phase. But this first phase is broken down into two subcomponents. One is about mobility. Do I have the ability to get my body in the positions that are required to move through more dynamic or more higher level skill movements? If I don't have the mobility to do that, then some compensations will happen. Those compensations will lead to less efficient movement potential injury, but I have to be able to be aware of where those limitations are from a mobility standpoint and to be able to tackle it appropriately. The secondary component of that creation of shapes has to do with core strength. Core strength is the basis for all movement, correct movement patterns in the gymnastics world. You know, you hear people talk about core to extremity all the time, but we do not spend enough time on building our core strength before we move to our extremity strength. And when I talk about core strength, I'm not just talking about, you know, um, abs and, you know, what I can see in the mirror. I'm not just talking about doing ab mat sit-ups. I'm not just talking about doing toes to bar. I'm talking about an all-encompassing approach to a strong core. So we have to look at our oblique strength. We have to look at our lateral and rotational strength. We have to look at our posterior chain strength. We have to look at everything that encompasses that midline to be able to move more appropriately when it comes to our core strength. Gymnasts do that better than most. I would say that gymnasts end up spending an, an incredible amount of time on building a strong core from a young age, as well as building the mobility to be able to move our bodies properly. And these are the two things that I would recommend people doing on a regular basis, an everyday basis, to be able to move better in anything that they're going to do. If you can become good at phase one, everything else that you're going to move on to do is going to benefit from it. 
brilliant. Now you mentioned core. You have a like a, a core what as well, don't you? Yeah, we have a bunch of programs uh, through a bunch of different um, apps and programs online. But the one that um, I would probably recommend is called Core Three Sixty Five. Uh, it's on our monkey method app that you can find on iOS and Android, but it's essentially, um, the workouts vary in difficulty level. Uh, there's a beginner and an advanced, um, kind of route that you can go on there, but it's a, it's a core workout every day for an entire year. And they range from about five to 15 minutes long. Some are super easy. You know, you can get them done. It really isn't very challenging at all. And some are extremely challenging, but the level of difficulty is less important with this program more uh, than the importance of doing something every day. That's really the intention of the program to get you into this mindset of every day I should be working on trying to build my core strength. So if it's five minutes a day, it's more of just trying to get you to open up the app and say, okay, what's my core work today? And then hopefully at the end of the year, it's such a pattern for you that it becomes natural for you to jump into it. Now with gymnasts having such a strong core, obviously the posterior and anterior chain, do you tend to see a lot of back injuries in gymnasts or is that core strength also contributing to a lot of back health overall? Well, I would say that it definitely helps prevent or mitigate the injuries that we see, but there are a lot of compress- compression forces that happen in gymnastics. So I I would say that back injuries are common. I, they're not the most common injury. Shoulder injuries are the most common that we see in the gymnastics world. But I have seen a lot of back injuries. And I mean, just with the nature of the sport, with the amount of forces that we're putting our body through when we're doing, you know, certain movements on high bar or rings or parallel bars or, you know, the impact forces that are happening when you're landing from 15 to 20 feet up in the air onto a hard surface, you know, your back is going to take quite a bit of, um, uh, of strain. Um, it's not to say that, you know, what we're doing from a core perspective doesn't help it. It definitely helps create, um, stability in there that allows us to perform these movements. But at the same time, there are still injuries that occur. Right. But, but using those without then flipping off 15 feet, it it wouldn't, it wouldn't (laughs) even be possible. It wouldn't even be possible. I mean, you, you cannot be a gymnast and expect to achieve really anything in the sport without a strong, stable core. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So then you mentioned mobility. What are some of the things you see of, of, in adult athletes, let's say, I don't know, 25 onwards, um, as far as restrictions of the average person when they're start, starting to enter this gymnastics world from, a, you know, an adult uh, step one? Uh, probably the, the biggest areas are hamstring adductors and then uh, underarm soft tissue upper back. So, you know, people hanging and, and hanging with a shoulder angle and not being able to actually get their shoulder angle to 180 and beyond, which ends up creating huge deficiencies with overhead positions with bar in hand, but also when you start to incorporate anything dynamic to it, any kipping action, any ring swinging, anything you're trying to do that requires your shoulders to move beyond 180 degrees, and if you can't stand there and put your arms directly above your head, imagine where that stress is going to be going. That ends up leading to a lot of elbow injuries, shoulder injuries, and lower back problems. So that's one of the areas that we see a majority of uh, the mobility in that upper back and soft tissue of the underarm, and then again of the hamstring and and adductors being able to compress, Um, you know, being able to bring the chest down towards the knees. Those are the areas that we end up focusing a lot on how do we get those hamstrings? How do we get those adductors? How do we get the upper back, um, that T-spine, as well as the soft tissue to be able to move appropriately so that you can do some of those movements uh, more fluidly and with a little bit less 
worry in terms of um, the ranges that you're putting putting yourself to that you can't handle. Right. Now, Ido Patel, I went to one of his um, workshops and he mentioned about hanging a certain amount of time per day for shoulder health. Is that something that you guys do as well? Yeah, we... I, I love hanging drills. I, hanging drills for shoulder strength and shoulder stability should definitely be something that you incorporate. Um, but it also has a phenomenal uh, impact on grip strength that I think people sometimes neglect. Uh, we do a lot of grip exercise. We do a lot of hanging exercises. But in terms of the benefit with regards to some of the soft tissue limitations, I prefer people hanging in undergrip and supinated grip. Uh, the supinated grip ends up tackling a little bit more of that uh, soft tissue immobility that we see. So we end up directing people more towards uh, exercises in the hanging position with undergrip as opposed to just overgrip, which is a tendency for most people. They'll end up being in a lot of overgrip, but I like seeing people in supinated grip as well. See, that's interesting because I, you know, way, way early on when you say a chin up, you'd always do, you know, supinated. But then when you enter the CrossFit space, now all your pull-ups are, are pronated and your bar work is basically pronated. You're not turning those hands over anymore. And so when I first started playing around with supinated again, I was blown away how much my mobility had reduced. And I think just because that movement pattern had actually created an imbalance. So um, that makes perfect sense because I think most people listening, if you do a lot of overhand stuff, just try doing some chin-ups and, and you and for, to me when I first started doing it again it was actually like painful yeah yeah because you've probably built you know when you're pulling that much your lat your teres your tricep it's all kind of becoming much more compressed it's becoming much much tighter so essentially what you're doing in that supinated grip is you're opening up those positions so if you become so used to doing a pronated pull that you've you're you've become so locked into that position that you're not able to open up that shoulder all the way i would even say you know worry less about pulling in pronated grip and or supinated grip but worry more about just hanging in the position and also working on some negative tempo with with some tempo um, that negative tempo working on some of that eccentric in the supinated grip is what will help build those muscle fibers into a little bit more of, um, an elastic position as opposed to just working on the pulling aspect. We're a little bit less about the concentric portion, a little bit more about the eccentric to help build the mobility component. Fantastic. All right. Well, I want to transition to, you know, what you guys offer. So tell me about Power Monkey Fitness and, and the, the, the broad, uh, spectrum of skills and, and instruction that you have on there. Yeah, so we, we do a few different things. Um, I think most people would probably recognize us from our Power Monkey Camp, which is our uh, full week-long event that we've been hosting for uh, coming up on seven years now. We do one in the fall and one in the spring. It's hosted out in the middle of the woods in Tennessee, in Crossville, Tennessee, which is right between Nashville and Knoxville. It's awesome. It's an amazing week of training and learning and bonding with people who are similarly minded as you. Uh, we bring in about 100 participants and another 50 to 70 um, guests and coaches and staff. So it's about 150 to 170 people there the entire week. We bring in some of the best coaches and clinicians in the world in a variety of different areas of training. Yoga, um, Olympic weightlifting, endurance training, rowing, kettlebell, uh, jump rope, gymnastics, obviously. Uh, then we do nutrition lectures, programming lectures, mental training. Um, we, we basically try to get the athlete and the coach to look at training from every different area. So uh, it's a really, really special week that we're really proud of. Uh, the camp is, the next one's going to be held uh, May 3rd through the 9th, again out in Tennessee. And uh, I would highly recommend checking it out if you're at all interested in uh, that type of an atmosphere. It's like 
summer camp for adults. Uh, summer camp in in an actual summer camp that's a kids camp in the summers, but we take over in the fall and spring and turn it into an adult fitness camp. Um, aside from that, we do weekend clinics and um, we started to branch out into some more high end retreats that we're going to be unveiling for the first time in 2020. Our first one's going to be in Crete, Greece. Uh, but we do a lot of weekend one day and two day clinics with weightlifting and gymnastics. Uh, you can check out those on our PowerMonkey website, just looking under the events tab. And they'll tell you all the clinics that we have coming up over the course of the next uh, couple of months. And then the other side is what we're doing uh, with our uh, online content. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we have an app right now. It's our Monkey Method app, which is a lot of skill based plans. So, you know, how to get your first muscle up, how to get your first pull up, working on your handstand. Um, it's a really great resource. It also has our entire video database on there. The palm of your hand, it's all searchable, has over a thousand videos on there and all different movements, both in Olympic weightlifting and gymnastics, which is a great resource that's free. Uh, but then also online, we have a monkey method online, which is basically a GPP type of a plan for gymnastics that has three different levels to it. And has a really good starting point for most people who are wanting to get in gymnastics movement who really don't know where to start. So we have both of those as our programs and what we're looking to build right now, which we're really excited about, we're going to be unveiling in 20, 2020, uh, is uh, our Power Monkey Academy. And the Academy is going to be where we feel like we have um, built the most um, kind of resource and the most impact that we're uh, having right now. It's coaching the coaches. And so not so much coaching athletes on how to become better competitors, but more about trying to give coaches the ability to understand how to apply these techniques in gym settings, in private um, training sessions. And so we're creating a curriculum right now. One's going to be just a subscription-based breaking down of movement, and that's going to build into a certification where uh, you're going to be able to become PowerMonkey certified as a coach uh, on our techniques. Uh, that'll be something that uh, we're really, really looking forward to unveiling and then slowly starting to do the same thing on the Olympic weightlifting side and beyond. But gymnastics would be our first kind of test case with the certification. Brilliant. Now, one thing I meant to ask you before as well. So you've got, you know, Chad with the, the weightlifting, you've got Chris with the endurance and, and you've got the gymnastics. For the people out there listening, how do you find that happy medium? And, and as you know, your CrossFit has got so many diverse movements, as you said earlier, to, to try and find that, that, that happy medium where you're able to kind of level up on each of the movements, but, you know, at, at a speed where you're not sacrificing one for the other. Well, I always put gymnastics first, and then Chris and Chad can fight for whatever is left over. <laughs> for scraps. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, th I think it's imperative on every coach and on every athlete to prioritize and to figure out where they want to put their emphasis. And some of that could be goal-oriented in terms of uh, you know, competitive setting and saying, okay, this is my competitive goal, this is my priority list, and this is where my needs are. Some of it might just be quality of life, like what do I want to be come good at and what do you know where do I want to spend my time because it's fun those are the most important things for athletes to be able to kind of lay lay down the map for before we can give you direction before we can give you a targeted training plan according to that you know we can give you all the things in the world that we think you should do, be doing but if it doesn't fall in line with your priority list and what you want to be getting out of it it really kind of is going to fall on deaf ears so the first part is really just trying to to map that out and then we kind of make directions and targeted approaches according to that.
Perfect. All right. Well, you mentioned Chris and Chad again. So one thing I want to make sure we talk about before I let you go is uh, the capacity wad that you guys started doing. Oh, yeah. So from your perspective as the gymnast in that group, um, tell me about capacity wad. All right. So uh, capacity wad was something that was brought to our attention by Chris uh, after you know him using this same approach uh, in the endurance world for so long and wanted to use it on skill-specific training and him having tested it out with some of his elite CrossFit athletes that he's been working with for a number of years. And when Chris brought it to our attention, um, I've I've fallen in love with this with the this idea. I think it's fascinating. I think the research behind it shows that um, it's worked um, for a number of years, and now we're bringing it into a completely new space. And being able to build capacity around skill specific training is something that you know CrossFit athletes and people looking to uh, learn skills at a very high level and trying to create longevity and duration around those movements have kind of hit a wall a little bit. And normally what you hear, you know, how do I get my muscle ups from five to 10 to 15 to 20? You just do more of them. And it's, it's a little bit of kind of a, a caveman approach to building capacity around skills. And this capacity wad uh, that we've created is an incredibly targeted approach to building skill specific capacity. It's incredible. And I, it's one of the things that's been most exciting to me about the projects that we've been working on for, for over the course of the past year. So, um, I can't wait for more and more people to check it out. And really, I think we're just at the infancy of where this program is right now. You know, we have our capacity wad that's available on sugar wad right now, which is basically just getting people to understand what capacity training is through our clearance workouts and through our tolerance workouts. But it's just a workout every day. It's a five-minute workout just to understand the concepts behind it. But really what the intention of the program is is to build towards more skill-specific training at a much higher level and to build plans for athletes at a higher level, not just within the CrossFit or the the uh, fitness-centric world, but also through other specific sports like, uh, you know, surfing or soccer or uh, even applying it to the gymnastics world and taking these same concepts and things that have been working in the endurance world for so long and applying them to higher level athlete training in a lot of different worlds. So um, I think it's a really, really fascinating little world. Yeah. Now you mentioned um, tolerance and clearance. Just if you wouldn't mind explaining those two concepts within that, that philosophy. Yeah, sure. Uh, so there, there are two different types of workouts that you'll see if you go in there. Uh, clearance workout is essentially, um, in the simplest of terms, is trying to create fatigue and trying to clear fatigue. So what you're doing is you're trying to get your fast twitch muscle fibers to create fatigue and release lactic acid. And then you're trying to engage uh, your slow twitch muscle fibers to help clear that uh, lactic acid. So create fatigue, clear fatigue. That's what a clearance workout is going to do. So you'll end up doing something at a very, very high intensity, and then you'll do something at a very slow intensity that engages the same muscle groups to help clear that lactic acid that you're creating. So that's what a clearance workout is. So they can be done in a variety of different muscle groups. Any muscle group, you can do it. Any movement pattern, but you're creating fatigue and clearing fatigue. Right. And then, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was going to say, and the tolerance... Yeah, so on the tolerance side, tolerance is, I like tolerance workouts. Tolerance workouts suck. They are really, really challenging. But what tolerance workouts do is they add a component of essentially not allowing that muscle that you're trying to fire to really clear the lactic acid. It forces that muscle to constantly stay on. So it's seeing how long you can tolerate 
the pain that's setting in or tolerate you know, that lactic acid that's building within a specific muscle group. So with a, with a tolerance workout, you'll add a component of a static hold uh, or you'll add an increased difficulty component to it. As an example, say we are doing a core tolerance workout where you're doing something like a V up and you're trying to get those abs and hip flexors to be working. Uh, instead of moving from a, a fast twitch muscle fiber workout uh, exercise right into a slow twitch, you'll move from a fast twitch into a static hold and you'll end up holding a hollow position to really try to keep that lactic acid and those muscles firing and then move into your slow twitch. So it forces you to be firing those muscles for much longer periods of time, uh, which in turn is much, much more challenging and forces you to sustain a higher level of output for longer periods of time. Right. Yeah. And then as I was talking to Chris, it's so pertinent to what we do. Like for example, firefighting specifically, you know, we may have a lot of exertion breaking the door down or open to, uh, to make entry to a building. Then we might have to climb multiple flights of stairs, a different exertion, but you're still having to move. You're not, you know, technically stopping and putting your hands on your knees. But then you might have to, you know, search a room and then find a victim. And now you're high intensity dragging that person out. So that ability to recover and that ability to be able to push through when when you are hurting are so pertinent to the people listening to this as well. Without a doubt. And I would actually be really interested in trying to create capacity and tolerance workouts specifically to the things that you guys are doing on a regular basis. You know what I mean? Like picking things up, walking up steps, uh, trying to do them quickly and then slowing down, you know, picking up heavier things and seeing whether or not those actually have a benefit. I would imagine that they would have tremendous benefit to what you guys are seeing when you're going out there on a regular basis in the field. Absolutely. I'm going to start playing with that concept myself in my class to see, you know, if we can start seeing some patterns specifically for those movements. Mm Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Okay, well, I want to do some rapid questions so I can let you go. Uh, the first one I love to ask people is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Yeah, there's one that I used to read when I was at the training center. It's called The Dynamic Path uh, by James Citron. I'm a huge fan of that book. I was able to meet meet James uh, while I was living at the Olympic Training Center, and that book really helped my mindset as an athlete in terms of being able to help find direction, help find um, meaning behind what I was trying to achieve. I love that book. I would highly recommend it. Uh, another one being a business owner that um, I'm sure you've heard other people say as well is uh, Principles that came out um, last year by Ray Dalio. Um, incredibly um, helpful book that you know takes principles that he's taken from the hedge fund world and applies it to basically any business owner and, and anyone trying to run and lead a team. So those are two that I um, have read recently or reread recently that I think I've had a huge impact on how I run my business and also how I approach things as an athlete. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Um, same question, but a movie. Oh, movie. Oh man, I'm a huge movie fan. So this is a difficult question. Uh, Can be more than one. <laughs> so there's a few that I kind of gravitate towards. Uh, I just watched the Irishman the other day. So I'm a huge Scorsese fan. Goodfellas is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, if you haven't seen, if you like Scorsese movies and have not seen Irishman, I would highly recommend it. It's a very long movie. It's three and a half hours long. Moves slowly, but if you appreciate kind of what he's trying to achieve and the storyline behind it, it's phenomenal. I highly recommend it. Um, another movie that's one of my favorites of all time is Big Lebowski. Uh, opposite end of the spectrum. I think it's brilliant. I think it's hilarious. Uh, if you haven't seen it, definitely watch it, but watch it more than once. It's the kind of thing that you need to watch maybe 10 times to get all the jokes and to get all of what the Coen brothers are trying to get out of it. So I would say Irishman for something just came out new and Lebowski for something different. Perfect. 
All right, yeah, both great movies. Um, then uh, documentary. Is there a documentary you love? Uh, yeah, a ton. I love watching documentaries. I think Icarus is one that always stands out. Uh, if you haven't seen Icar- Ic- Icarus yet on uh, Netflix, I think it's fascinating. Kind of goes into um, the uh, Russian doping scandal uh, and their, you know, what they were doing leading up to the Sochi Olympic Games in, uh, I believe, 2014. Um, especially. As- a little bit more pertinent right now after uh, the IOC putting out the four-year ban for the um, Russian Olympic team leading up to Tokyo Olympics this year. Um, very, very interesting storyline there. Um, yeah, another one, maybe The Cove. That's another one that maybe come at, came out a couple years ago that I just um, started watching again because uh, the director of uh, the movie was on Joe Rogan podcast recently and was talking about it. And so I watched it again, uh, talks about the, uh, you know, the killing of the dolphins out in the Japanese waters over there. It's a really amazing uh, documentary that, um, you know, you haven't, you don't really understand until you actually see how devastating it actually is. And uh, the one that gets all the press right now, Game Changers, I watched recently too, but that's a completely different story. Yeah, now Game Changers, I just had James Wilkes on and we had a great conversation. There was no arguing, there was no disputing, <laughs> disputing, you know, studies. It was the middle ground where, yeah, you know, more plants is actually good for you and, you know, let's clean up the way we farm. Right, um, right. What was your take on Game Changers? Did you enjoy it? I did. You know, I don't eat meat and, uh, but I, you know, I understand the perspective of meat eaters and, you know, uh, to me, I think you have to really understand that everyone's different in terms of their biology, in terms of their background, in terms of their access. I think the best approach to any diet is a predominantly uh, plant-based diet is the route to go. I think what you want to try to find are locally sourced, high quality, and um, a lot of variety. That's kind of the the approach that I think is going to benefit most people. I think for the most part, when you watch something like Game Changers, when you watch somebody uh, talk about a carnivore diet or anything like that, you're looking at uh, trying to stir up controversy or just trying to get people on your side. I think there's so much uh, on both sides of those spectrum in terms of, you know, um, people who are experts talking about this and people are talking about that, that it could get so confusing for people in terms of what's optimal for them. But people need to find out what diet is correct for them by just testing different things. And I just did a food sensitivity testing the other day and got my results back and found out that I'm pretty sensitive to certain things I did I wasn't aware of. And so that's going to have an impact on my diet. And so for me, it's just about testing different things to find out what gives me the optimal uh, energy and optimal route to have a healthy life. So I thought it was really good. I love the conversation that uh, it's it's caused. Uh, but I think a vegan diet for most people probably isn't necessary. And most people's vegan diets are probably shit anyway. Um, so it really is more about quality over uh, anything else. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I really couldn't because to me, if we're arguing about studies but still allowing people to wear hazmat suits to spray our vegetables, then we're totally right. missing the point. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I appreciate the conversation and I think it's a really good one to have, but uh, the quality and um, you know the variety I think is most important rather than like saying this is definitively the diet for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So next question. Is there a person you recommend as a guest to come on this podcast to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Ooh, a really good question. Um, so we work with a lot of uh, people in the PT world and, um, they've always been such a great year for me, uh, to be able to, you know, listen to what's going on in our sports specific worlds. I would say that either, uh, Dave Tilly, Dr. Dave Tilly or, uh, Dr. Dan Pope, 
who are both um, part of our uh, medical team in the uh, Power Monkey world. I think either one of those would be an incredible resource for you guys. Uh, they are amazing at what they do. Uh, and I think they would. your listeners would love uh, hearing from either of them. Excellent. Well, thank you. I would definitely uh, would love to have both of them on. Um, all right, so then the last question before we reiterate where everyone can find all the content online. Um, what do you do to decompress when you're not uh, teaching and setting, you know, traveling all over the world teaching Power Monkey? Uh, well, I try to spend time with my daughter. I have a uh, soon-to-be three-year-old and another uh, daughter on the way. Uh, so I try to spend time with my, my family here in Portland. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, art is kind of my little getaway. Um, I um, am trying to get into the calligraphy world now. I love the precision. I love um, kind of being able to make things um, exact. And I've tried to do that in my gymnastics world. And I love being able to be precise in other areas of my life. So I try to just kind of uh, sit behind my art desk here and shut off from the rest of the world and allow my mind to slow down a little bit through that. Yeah. Do you find that calligraphy allows you to, to be present? Absolutely. Um, and my mentor, the person that's kind of uh, aiding my, my uh, process here, told me to, you know, do it either early in the morning or late at night when your mind is, you know, slowing down a little bit and uh, gives you the ability to kind of make sure that hand is nice and still. And so I've used it as a way to kind of like shut off my brain at the end of the day and, and spend a little bit of time before I actually get into bed. Brilliant. Okay, well, Dave, let's uh, go over where people can find Power Monkey and, and how they can find you online as well. Sure. So um, social media is just at Dave Durante on um, Instagram, D-A-V-E-D-U-R-A-N-T-E. Uh, that's where I put up most of my private content. We also have at Power Monkey Fitness, which is our company's Instagram account. Uh, our website is PowerMonkeyFitness.com or PowerMonkeyCamp.com. And those have all the information of our events, our camp, and um, the other resource, like I mentioned earlier, is our Monkey Method app, which you can find at Android and on iOS. Monkey method. And then what about the ring thing? Is that on one of the uh, websites? Yep. If you uh, go onto our Power Monkey Fitness website at the top, you'll see uh, products. You'll find Ring Thing and you'll be able to find the resource there. Uh, all of our Ring Thing videos are both on our YouTube channel, which is under Power Monkey Fitness, as well as on our app. And uh, if you have any interest in you know, the certification process, you can contact us at info at PowerMonkeyFitness.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been uh, a great conversation. I've learned a huge amount already. I still don't know how to do a bar muscle up, but we'll we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> no worries. We can get that for you. No problem. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and being so generous. Thanks, James. I appreciate it. 